last week in looking at the value and the sanctity of human life, and this week looking at the idea of gospel-driven diversity within the body of Christ. The video, when I saw it this week, just took the two issues and put them together exactly how they should be. That in Christ, and what we're going to say in the sermon today, and, and this is what you need to walk away from this with, in Christ, all human barriers are destroyed, broken down, done away with, and through Him, by His love for us, we now love one another as He has loved us. Which has no limit, does it? I mean, the world looks at those children and says, they don't really need to live. It's a mercy that they be aborted because their life doesn't have a lot of value because it's going to be hard for them. And then you see, just like the young man said, when you take a child and put it in a family and you love the child and let them be fully human for all that means, they thrive. Arms aren't necessary. Legs aren't necessary. All these things aren't necessary to be human, to be fully human. And God loves these children. And so our church loves these children. And I'm thankful for a church that over the last five, six years has given um, now close to $100,000 to rescue the orphans of the world. And has seen over 25 children come home to family, Christian families where they're thriving, they're growing, they're learning. And I believe it's just the beginning of what God will do in our midst if we're willing to live generously and give. And, and so um, let's remember that today and take that forward into our own lives. Take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 9. As we look at the idea of race or diversity in the gospel, and the t title of the sermon is The Curse on Canaan and How It Relates to the Gospel. Genesis 9, 18 through 28. Before I start, I just want to give you a couple of uh, resources if you're interested in reading more about what I'm talking about today in Genesis 9 from these passages. One book is uh, written by <clears throat> David M. Goldenberg, um, a Jewish scholar who writes The Curse of Ham, Race and Slavery in Early Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. The Curse of Ham, Race and Slavery in Early Judaism and Christianity and Islam. And then a book that I read um, my senior year in college. Many of you know my undergrads in history, and my specialization was Southern nationalism. And my book, uh, excuse me, the article that I wrote um, that was accepted as my senior thesis was on the idea of Southern nationalism. And did it exist? And then a big, large section of that uh, 48 pages was dedicated to what we're talking about today. So it's something I've been studying, not that I'm an expert, but I have been studying this issue since my early 20s. Um, I'm an old man now. So, uh, the gospel of disunion. The gospel of disunion. Uh, religion and separatism in the antebellum South. Um, this book by uh, Mitchell Sle Sne, 
um, was formative in my understanding of what really went on in our history as Americans. Gospel of Disunion. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful book. You can check it out in my library as long as you promise to bring it back. So we come to this topic of race relations. It's something we've done. It's not the first year we've done it. We've done it every year. I know, uh, um, thinking back, I know we've done it every year on this Sunday or around this Sunday since 2004. I don't, I don't think we... Um, I think that was the first January, and that's, that's when we kind of started looking at this. And it has grown over the years, and it's continued over the years. You might say there are a thousand issues in the world. Why do you pick the cause of life and the cause of race relations or diversity in the church as two issues that you hold up uh, as important? Because I don't think there's any two issues that strike closer to the heart of the gospel in our human experience than the sanctity of life and the discrimination or the racial hatred that has developed among us uh, as people of the world. And so, those two issues are very large in the Bible. I think they're large in our history. And so, we relate to them in that way. <clears throat> the text says in Genesis 9, verse 18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil. He was a farmer. And he planted vineyards. The idea in the Hebrew is not that he, for the first time in world existence, planted vineyards. Okay, It's very likely that he was a farmer prior to the flood. But the Bible, what it's saying is, the Hebrew seems to indicate that it's a continuation of what was going on before. So some people will excuse Noah's drunkenness because they'll say, well, he didn't know what he was doing. He made this wine. He, I mean, he made this grape juice. He let it sit a little too long. It fermented. He drank it. He got drunk. He passed out. That doesn't seem to be the idea here. The idea seems to be he did know what he was doing, and therefore he sinned by being drunk. So he's not blameless, in other words. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, that's the second time you've heard that, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. I want to pause and say, I do not believe. There's two predominant theories of why Ham is cursed so severely in this text. One theory, which has become increasingly popular in our day, is that what Ham actually did here was commit sexual sin against his father. That's become just rampant in modern thought. I, and there's some some support for that, okay? Because later in the text, Moses is going to write that another uncovers the nakedness of a woman and it's, it's his way of discreetly writing about the sexual act. So I'm not saying it's absolutely impossible that that's what happened. But it doesn't appear that that's what happened. What it appears to be is that a young son went in and saw his dad and disrespected his dad. He then left and went out and made jokes about his father laughed and scoffed and mocked his father to his brothers and was wanting his brothers to join in. Rather than joining in, we see that in verse 23, Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. In the society that they were in, nakedness was shameful. 
to, that a man would be caught without covering, proper covering, would have been a great shame. And so these two sons of the three are showing great respect and reverence for their father. And I wanted to see him in, in a compromised position. Okay, and I think that's, the, that's what's going on here. You have a heart in Ham of rebellious uh, individualism that disrespects not only their fa- his father, but basically all mores in society. He's just uncivilized. All right, and he, he's um, punished for that, I think. I think it might be going too far to go any further than that. We don't have any proof. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, notice this, Ham has been introduced as the father of Canaan twice in this text. And now, look at the curse. Cursed be Canaan, not Ham, Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So we have here the account, and I just want to say, what happened in this, and the reason I brought up the book, what happened is throughout time, what has, what has been done, even by some scholars, um, Kiel in his commentary on, on uh, Genesis writes, that when Noah cursed Canaan, what he actually did was curse all of Ham's descendants. And we, we're going to see in verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 6, that Ham had sons, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Alright, and then it goes through all of the descendants of his sons. And so what is popular sometimes is to take the curse that Noah and apply it to all of Ham's descendants. I think it's unwarranted. I don't think there's anything in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible, do we see that is the way we should interpret it. Rather, every Bible, I think, points that the one son, Canaan, is cursed. And his descendants are cursed. All right. Now, why making a big deal out of that? Because what then began to happen was the well, Cush. Cush was the forefather, we believe, of the Ethiopian people of Africa. Egypt, in this text, uh, uh, was the second son, and he was the father of the people of Egypt. And then we have uh, um, Put, who probably is the father of the Libyan people, all of the people of northern Africa. And we have Canaan. And Canaan is the forefather. In our text, verse 15, Canaan fathered Sidon, his born, and Heth, and the Jebus, the Anites, the Gushites, the Hivites, the Ites, the Sites, the Zimorites, the Zimorites, the Hamathites, the Ite. He's the father of the Ite Bible. Okay? Where did they live? In the land of Canaan. God's curse fell on Canaan. His descendants populated not Africa. They populated the region we know as the land of Canaan. That's key. Because see, wrong theology will drive you to wrong results. Dangerous. Wrong theology drives good awful things. I think it's biblical principle. 
What began to grow out of the curse on Canaan is the that Ham himself was cursed. Therefore, all descendants were cursed. So, what we're dealing with is a human race that descended. They're not fully like Japheth's descendants. And then from what we did was darkened people to be enslaved, justified by our test. Racism is a life tale to divide God's people on ethnic lines. And the same know wisely that if you find a fold in the Bible, what appears foothold in the Bible, his theology, he gains power. And to rightly be, or rightly, all over nation in, uh, from the 1830s, a reason that could and shrifely permission by and in was Gen 9. That didn't stop at the continued child told. Remember something uh, we'll say. Bird feather. Flock. Well, daddy, little kids, was going to go kid down to five or six ads of a feather. I didn't know. Fits themselves that way. This morning, all believe in This lifetime is the language that we are better to get our you at all. As you're turning to 12, I want to read it again. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servant shall he be to his brothers. Shem is the forefather of Abraham. And Shem's uh, his posterity spreads and is powerful. And Abram is born to Terah. And Abram is standing, in a sense, in a, in a crux of history. God has dispersed the people of the world by language all over the world at the Tower of Babel. And look what God does in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and, you, bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in all the families of the earth shall, in, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's this passage in Galatians that Paul takes up and says Christ is the fulfillment of the seed of Abraham. It is to Christ that God promised to make Him a blessing to all of the nations. It's through the descendant, the far descendant of Abraham in Jesus, in Christ, that God brings about the promise of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1-3, through where Abraham becomes a blessing to all nations. Now I want to call your attention to that statement. At the end of verse 3, look what it says. In you... All the families. All the families? I thought he cursed Canaan. You shall be a servant of the servants, shall you be to your brothers. But Canaan, God in His providence says, Canaan, though you are cursed to be a servant, yet I will bless you in Abraham. So we haven't gone full three chapters. And God has begun to work and weave in the curse that was spoken in Genesis 9 into the beautiful tapestry of God's redemptive power over sin. What's happening here is God saying, the curse of sin shall not succeed. The curse of sin shall not hold a whole family of the earth and damn them to hell. That curse of sin is powerful, but it's not as powerful as me, as my son, as my plant. 
So, in Genesis chapter 12, we begin to see the mystery unfold. It's still mystery. It's still a far distant realization. We haven't gotten there yet in Genesis 12, but we've begun our journey that God is going to bless all the families of the earth in the one who comes from the line of Abraham, who Paul says in Galatians is Jesus Christ. So, this is not the last word of the Canaanite people. In Joshua chapter 2, now you can just walk forward with me. We're, we're going to just walk through quickly here how God weaves in the Canaanite people into the story of redemption. It's beautiful. God is a God of justice and He acts out of that justice to punish sin. But He is a God of mercy who redeems His people through the curse of sin through His Son, Jesus Christ. He redeems them from the curse of sin through His Son, Jesus Christ. So in Joshua chapter 2, we find in verse 1, Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And so then we, we launch out into the story here of how Rahab takes the spies and hides them, keeps them safe. And then before she sends them on their way, she tells them, Remember me, when you come back to conquer Jericho, please remember me and my household. And the spies give their word to her, We will remember you, we will protect you. If you hang out from your window a scarlet thread which signifies this is your home, all the rest of the people will be destroyed, but not you and not anyone under your roof that is in your father's house. You will not die. God is weaving in the plan of the curse of Canaan into the tapestry of the Gospel. He, he saves the life of Rahab and her family. In Joshua 6, the people of Israel storm Jericho and the walls of Jericho. And they take down the city. In verse 22, this is what's said. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, listen to this, verse 25. Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. Joshua saved a Canaanite. He redeemed her. He saved her. And he saved her whole family. And she lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. What do I see here that relates to Genesis 9? Genesis 9, God curses Canaan and his descendants. But that's not the last word. In Genesis 12, he says all the families, including the Canaanites, will be blessed in the descendants of Abraham. Particularly the descendant, Christ, the seed. And then in Joshua... He begins to actively fulfill His promise. What we find in Rahab is a faithful Canaanite. 
She believes in God's promise to God's people. She knows, I'm not one of God's people. I'm cursed. I'm of the race of Canaan. I deserve to die, but I will throw myself on the mercy of God that He saved me. If He won't save me, I'm dying with everybody else. That's what she did. And the proof of it was the fact that she carried out exactly... I mean, listen, if you knew an approaching army was coming... And you're in your house on the wall. That's where prostitutes stayed, was up on the wall. And the men of the night would come to her and do their deed. So she's got a bird's eye view and she sees these people march around. She knows, man, it's coming. They're going to overrun us. Do you think your salvation plan would be, I'm going to put a rope out the window and I'm going to stay in my house. I'm just going to stay right here. I believe that these people are not going to kill me. Are you kidding me? If I got advance notice that an army's coming to Jacksonville tonight, my human flesh says do what? Run. Get out now while the getting's good, right? That's not what she does. Why? Because she has faith, not in the people of Israel, but in the God of Israel. Here God begins to weave back in this cursed people into His plan of redemption. And He just sows Rahab and her family right there. And He tells us, after that, the epithet is she lived with the people of Israel from that day forward. She cast her lot with the God of Israel. She had saving faith in the God of Israel. And God saved her. So God cursed this people, Canaan, very specifically. He did not curse Cush. He did not curse Put. He did not curse Egypt. He cursed Canaan. And then He promised, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you, Abraham, including the Canaanites. And then he saves Rahab, a prostitute, from dying. Why? What is God doing? Matthew chapter 1. God's redeeming people through His Son, Jesus Christ. Matthew 1 gives the genealogy of Jesus. And we read through Abraham and Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah, and Judah's the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. This cursed people has now been weaved into the DNA of the Savior. Has been weaved in to the lineage. To the lineage. The lineage, the genealogy, the DNA of the family of the Lord. Rahab, a prostitute. Not only Rahab, but Ruth, the Moabitess is also in his family. And so, not genetically, not in his makeup, because this is Joseph's genealogy, but in his family. In the DNA of his family's genealogy are these cursed people. Why? Because God had a plan from the beginning to bless all the families of the earth in His Son. One of the most racist things you can do is not love all of the peoples of the earth. One of the most 
despicable things we can do as a church is say those people belong in that group and our people belong in our group. Because it's through that divisiveness that the gospel sometimes is squelched. I thank God the men like David Livingstone and William Carey did not look at the dark-skinned people of the world and say, it was popular in their day to say it, but they did not. They didn't say, well, if God wants to save dark-skinned people, He'll just send somebody like an angel to tell them. But these white men had a passion for the whole world. And they did not see in Genesis 9 a curse against the descendants of Ham that was irreversible. Rather, they saw the hope of the gospel in the descendants of Canaan. Through things like Rahab. So here in Jesus' family, in His own lineage, now you kind of get a picture. Not only was Jesus born of questionable birth in the eyes of the people at large, because say Joseph and Mary, they've only been together so long, Jesus was already born. This doesn't add up, right? But they begin to charge him with illegitimacy. That's what the Pharisees constantly do. And I can't help but think that they not, because they were so conscious of their DNA and of their family's heritage, I can't help but think that some people knew Joseph's lineage. And they knew, yeah, not only is he of possible illegitimacy, but he's got Ruth and Rahab, a Moabite and a Canaanite in his family. This guy is tainted on all sides. God didn't see him that way. Did he? God blessed him. God grew him up and he became a blessing. Not just through his genealogy, but because his gospel, the hope that you and I have, hopefully in him, was extended to these same Canaanite people. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul closes out his idea of the mystery of the gospel by rendering that gospel as legitimate for the Gentiles. Paul, to Paul and to the Jewish people of his day, the Gentiles meant all non-Jews, but particularly the Canaanites, particularly those ites of the Old Testament, those people who dwelled in the promised land because it wasn't their land, they had a particular hatred towards them. And here, Paul says, the mystery, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, God has spoken clearly and loudly. That Genesis 9, 18-25 is not the story of a cursing of dark-skinned people, but far from that is how God weaved in the lineage of Jesus, these Canaanites, who once were cursed but now have been saved through saving faith in Him. If God can save a Canaanite, this is what the Bible is saying, if God can save a Canaanite Jews, who else can He not save? If He can save Rahab, Who's excluded from this gospel? Isn't it sad how Satan will take and play what can be some of the most beautiful passages of the Bible and use them for such evil purposes? Such evil purposes. Why, how should we respond? I just want to give two gospel responses. I believe two things that here at Grace Fellowship we should do and continue to do. To show that we believe the gospel is for all men. Number one... We should actively seek to preach the gospel to all men in our community. Regardless of their ethnicity, we should be sharing the gospel passionately, fervently with all the people of our community. 
We long for the day. We should long and pray for the day that we do away with this terminology, silly terminology of black church and white church and Hispanic church. But rather that we begin to talk about church and we bring together the people through the gospel. Part of that is confessing that some in here have held on to this lie from Genesis 9. You would never admit it publicly. I'm not asking you to. But some of you have long harbored this lie because it's what you were taught as a child. You've just kept it deep down inside. And you've sat through from 2004 to 9 a lot of sermons on race. And you just kind of tolerate it and go home. And you need to confess the sin that resides deep in you of racism. You need to say, I've wrongly understood that verse for years. I've been taught wrong. I am wrong. And I confess that I'm wrong. That's the first step. And then begin to live out that confession by preaching the gospel to everyone indiscriminately. And secondly, we should actively, passionately seek to have real, meaningful relationship, break bread relationship with people in our community of all creeds, kinds, ethnicities. We should be actively seeking that. Because nothing preaches this message better than us actually living the message rather than just talking about it once a year. I do not want to turn January 20th into our once a year talk about racism that we tolerate and then we just launch back out into our daily lives. And I don't think it has been that. We have together watched as God has begun to diversify our body through the years. And we praise God for that. But listen, what gains we've had are not enough. We should be praying and being aggressive about more gains in this area. Not, not so that we can say, look what we did, but so that we can say, look how powerful the gospel is. Look how great our God is. If He can, if he can save a Canaanite he can, and unify them into the family, He can unify any of us into the family. No matter where we come from. No matter our background. Let's kick out the crutches of wrong teaching. Bad theology. Out from under ourselves and others. You've been properly educated now on Genesis 9. I expect that when it comes up in the workplace, you speak up. Say, man, that's dangerous. The gospel and the call of the Bible is dangerous. When you hear that kind of stuff, you should just, not rudely, but you say, hey, that's not right. That's not right. That, that's wrong. That's been passed down for generations in the wrong way. Let me talk a little bit about that. A good resource that I, again, encourage you this year to read is Bloodlines by John Piper. He has an appendix on this, chap, on this idea in Genesis 9. He has an appendix. It's great. Even more detailed than what I've done. But it, the whole book is beautiful. It's wonderful. And I think I would commend it to you as the number one resource kind of in this area of theology. Bloodlines is written a couple years ago. Thank you for being attentive. Thank you for flipping around in the Bible. I hear the pages turning. It's encouraging to hear those pages turning when you're up here. Especially today. Especially on a topic that's not very comfortable. Okay? It's not comfortable for anybody. But it's necessary that, we've, that we face these and, and face them honestly and face them lovingly and accept them through the gospel. Accept our, our fallenness through the gospel and our salvation through the gospel and the salvation of others through the gospel.